Welcome to the John Chapman Show, where we talk about the path of a wealthy millennial, uncovering the truth about building and protecting your nest egg. Join us on this journey as we hear the stories of millennials and mentors alike to help you plan, manage, and protect your wealth. John is an employee of Worth Point LLC. All opinions expressed by John and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Worth Point. This podcast should not be relied upon for investment decisions and is for informational purposes only. Hey everyone, it's John Chapman. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the podcast. Today we interviewed Alec Magami, who's a vice president of acquisitions at Stockbridge Capital Group. His job is to buy institutional real estate buildings in and around the West Coast in a range of capacities, multifamily and industrial. He's had a really good career in real estate. Part of why I wanted to have Alec on today was to talk to buying an investment property it seems as if more and more I'm talking to friends and colleagues that are interested in diversifying some of their investments beyond stocks and bonds, and a logical next step is real estate. But there's some common misconceptions and some really big differences from buying a single-family home to buying an investment property, even if that is happens to be a single-family home. We talk about how every building has a story, and Alec explains what that means. He also shares with us the three different valuation metrics that institutional buyers use when they try to get a handle on how much a property is worth. We also talk about some of the differences in debt to equity, how large of a loan you can get, and what the amortization schedule is. So if you're at all interested in buying an investment property for you or for a group of friends sometime now or in the near future, this is a really awesome episode. So without further ado, I'll bring in my friend, Alec Magami. Hey, Alec, thanks for being here today. Thrilled to be here. Alec, I wanted to have you on because... Real estate is back on the hot seat. Funny how <laughs> markets go in waves. It's been 10 years since the Great Recession. It seems like everybody forgets. You have monetary, <laughs> uh, easy money through monetary policy. And, uh, and here we are. So we've had friends, we've chatted on offline, who are dying to get into real estate investing beyond just some residential house rentals, some commercial property. So because you have an expertise in real estate, especially from an institutional background, I think it'd be great to have you enlighten some of us who are looking at real estate as a possible investment and just give us some some tips and also some things to be concerned on. So that's sort of the, the setting the stage. Before we get into it, can you just give us a really quick introduction when you came out of college, did you know you wanted to be in real estate? How did you get involved and what a little bit of your path has been? Sure. Yeah. So let's see. So yeah, you know, originally from Seattle and uh, growing up, my mom was an eye banker and my dad was a Boeing engineer. Um, so no, no real real estate background, but we had a, we had a really cool house that overlooked uh, downtown Bellevue and downtown Seattle and in middle school. So kind of, 2003 to 2007, uh, new high rises started popping up on the skylines. And for whatever reason, I, I still don't know exactly what it was, but uh, I, I was just captivated watching these buildings get built from the ground up. And you know, these, these are these are soon to be permanent showpieces on the skyline. And so I'd, I'd come home every day and, and chart the progress 
of, uh, of these buildings rising. And my, my parents were great about, about nurturing that. My dad, being an engineer, pushed me towards you know, the engineering architecture side of it. And my mom, being a banker, pushed me towards the kind of the finance and, and private equity side of it. And once I realized that uh, you know, the, the money is, is who makes decisions, I, you know, I didn't look back. And so majored in finance at, at the University of Washington, did an internship actually down in Newport Beach for my, for my junior year, just working in brokerage and uh, really as a screen monkey. And uh, my first job out of undergrad was, was down here in San Francisco working uh, with Prudential Mortgage Capital, now, now known as PGM interesting rebrand. Don't love it. Uh, haven't updated my resume to reflect that, but or originating senior secured debt on super institutional real estate all throughout North America. So we're talking, you know, we'd, we'd originate billion dollar senior mortgages on Don, you know, five apartment buildings owned by the Irvine company down in Orange County. Uh, we do you know, a half billion dollar cross-collateralized pool of industrial assets for A and B, now Prologis. So a cool way to learn the business. Definitely. But, um, far, far from sexy. Uh, they, you know, on the debt side, you spend days underwriting these assets. Right. Um, and and at, the end of, at the end of the day, you're, you're putting out money up to 40 to 50% of its, of its cost. Uh, you're never going to get the asset back. The, your downside is so very limited, and so all that, all to me, that underwriting just felt like it was for naught. You, you you don't participate in the upside, and so why bother underwriting these things so so carefully? And I know that has devious hints of how we ended up in uh, you know in, in the issue we did in, in 2008, but uh, this is this is far from high risk high risk stuff. So. Yeah. Anyway, that's so how I started my career. Got, I love it. So you had, and it sounds like, you know, from that, all of the underwriting gives you the practical skills. You had to see a ton of things. So now you've, you've, you're armed with all of this information. So I know that eventually somehow in your career, you moved over to be on the acquisition side. How did that take place? Yeah. Well, so after about a year of, a year of underwriting these repetitive deals and not feeling like I was really adding to the value value process. Uh, a a friend of mine actually who, uh, who who worked on the equity side with Prudential, which was at the time known as PREI, now PGM Real Estate, uh, <laughs> rode the same bus as I did, and uh, they they had an analyst vacancy and offered me the opportunity to interview internally, and uh, I, I I got the gig doing acquisitions out of San Francisco, one floor up in Forum Barcadero Center. And uh, it, it was the best move I ever made. Uh, mm, great. To go from, you know, doing, doing the same, doing a lot of the same tasks, but, uh, but completely flipping your mindset. Uh, whereas okay. on the debt side, you're deathly afraid of, of downside and deathly afraid of getting these assets back. Uh, on, on the equity side, it's all about the upside. It's all about how you how you can impact the return of the asset and uh so yeah going out and uh and buying and building office multifamily industrial retail a few hotel and then uh, some storage and data center assets up and down the west coast 
So there's two things there. The first is you you changed hats. You went from the risk management hack of the just trying to do whatever you can to underwrite the building and 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 hope that you get it back at one point to the risk taking hat. How can we add alpha or add value, whatever it is, and and be more opportunistic and entrepreneurial in your thinking? So that's a huge shift. So I think it's super fun to think about that, and I want to continue on in just a second. Regarding all the different types of properties, I think that's one of the areas where people don't know as much about. Just like maybe in the world of uh, public markets for stocks, we've got small caps, large caps, medium-sized companies, and then you all get the 10 sectors of the market, financials, healthcare, and so on. So there's there's a lot of sub-sectors. And in real estate, it's it's similar. There's a lot of sub-sectors. Just out of curiosity, is there one or two in particular that you've enjoyed or find that are the most appealing? I I love it all, but I I do want to take a minute and say, until this year, uh, real estate actually, uh, you know, in, in the subsectors, was considered a a subsector of financials, and so the the biggest asset class globally didn't even get a, you know, a, a heading section for, for most equity analysts. So that's right. Yeah. Sometime it was sometime in 28 or I, somewhat recently it's up 2018 or late 2017 that S and P added its own real estate subsector. Right. I, I, I always felt personally slighted by, by not having a, <laughs> not having a sector there. So that's, that's okay. a big win for me. <laughs> that's great. Uh, Good no, to you. I, as as far as favorite asset classes, yeah, it it's it's tough to say because you know, industrial industrial at least on the face of it, it's it's super hot in the investment sales market now, but kind of gets a bad rap for being bland and four walls and a roof and out in peripheral areas that you'd never want to spend time in. But every industrial asset tells a story, and and oftentimes that. Some are used for last mile logistics. Some are light manufacturing. Some some are some are seriously, you know, basically office buildings with really high ceilings. And and for a long time, you used to be able to get uh, you know, a, a good premium, a good rent pre- not rent premium, but return premium uh, with with industrial. The 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 cap seems to be out of the bag on that one, and uh, it, it's now probably the hottest investment property type for, uh, you know, for, for the funds and for the REITs these days, but love industrial office buildings are always, are always, they have the potential to be super sexy. When we, when we think of, you know, maybe, maybe when we think of the, 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 the consummate real estate deal, you think of someone buying a, you know, a high, high rise office building in, in Manhattan or San Francisco. And, uh, while, while those, have definitely gotten more and more expensive and uh, maybe more and more core over time. It's, it's always still, still fun to, to look at those deals and realize that you're buying a piece of a skyline and buying a piece of, of a city. But that's also the case anytime you buy real estate. I mean, real estate comprises the, you know, our entire known world. It's, uh, it, it's really just land plus improvements. Uh, so we, we, we spend our entire lives in real estate without really thinking about it. I love what you said that every building tells a story. That's <laughs> such a great line. And it, it, it personalizes, especially in industrial 
And, and as an outsider, I certainly look at industrial like, wow, how boring. It's not the sexy multifamily or apartment complexes, no doubt. But at the same time, uh, all of the insiders I talk to seem to all sort of have this passion for industrial because of what it offers. But um, I love that line. I would, I want to shift gears because in thinking about this, more and more of, I'd say, our generation, our millennial generation, as we're advancing in our career and uh, looking for other investment opportunities beyond maybe just stocks and bonds and needing for some appropriate diversification. I think each of us have shared offline that folks have come to us with questions about how and how to go about buying an investment property, a commercial property. So let's dive in there. Can you give us some things to think about? Let's say so if somebody already has uh, a, a, just a burning desire, a hole in their pocket to make a, 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 an investment in an investment property, what are the things that this person, these people should be thinking about? Sure. Well, so I'm, I'm a, a naturally skeptical person and uh, you know, I, I invest in real estate for a living and obviously at a much uh, much more institutional scale than 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 you know your friends or my friends are are looking at doing. But the the underlying motivation to invest in real estate is is a really sound one. And I think I think people are are starting to you know as as we kind of come of age and you know start to put down roots as as millennials, I guess people are realizing that the path to the path to real wealth and and intergenerational wealth is is passive income. And, and building building avenues for for passive income and, and real estate historically has been by far the best you know, the best way to do that. One might argue that uh, you know a dollar invested in in public a bucket of public equities has has done the same thing, but I, I think that I think that misses the point. So I think it's I think it's great that that people are are recognizing the the inherent value in in real estate to both generate recurring cash flow and uh, yeah, and also to serve as a, you know, a, a way to a way to take advantage of appreciation over time that said uh, I think so many people have have been not led astray but a little bit misled by the the popularity of these home flipping shows and uh, you know, it just it seems like there's more and more Stories out there about people building, port, you know, personal portfolios of office buildings and, and rental properties that you know have enabled them to to quit their jobs and live off rent. And that's that's certainly you know, folks have certainly done it, uh, but it's but it's not without risk and it's not easy. And y- you should you should always be skeptical when everyone seems to be running into the same asset class for the same reason. That's 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 really how bubbles happen. So. Uh, I am ha- happy to go into to, to greater detail on that, but I think I think it's probably easiest to to focus on, you know, as, as far as a, a case study is concerned. The uh, at least personally, I've, I've got a I've got a couple. My my closest friend and his fiance, both lawyers, and uh, you know, they they've asked me, you know, where can we where can we invest half a million dollars, say, uh, of equity? We we want that passive income. We want that intergenerational wealth. And uh, it seems it seems that the most uh, most relatable point of entry for folks starting in real estate is uh, is, is residential, either single family or, or multifamily assets. So uh, it, you know, if, if, if 
you're ready to expand on that, I'm uh, I'm I'm happy to 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 go ham on on the subject. Let's do it. One of the things you've you've brought up a good thing. I think it's important to be skeptical. I certainly approach this with a sense of skepticism too. And the 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 stories that we hear, they might sound exciting and compelling, but the opposite side of that coin doesn't get talked about enough is just the incredible amounts of risk and time that it takes to uh, have this sort of living off the rents and quitting your nine to five. So I think that's uh, I'd caution anybody who's sort of thinking about that. But let's assume that we've got some cautious friends as our case study. I want to make sure to talk about just valuation metrics, especially when it comes to, you know, to compare and contrast buying your first home. There's so much more emotion involved, and this is my primary residence. And so the, the skills of just basic valuation aren't necessarily being taught when we go through our first ever real estate deal. So it might be that second or third that we're getting to a place where, okay, I need to learn about some valuation. So whether or not let's pick on, we can pick on either uh, re- residential or multifamily. I'll let you decide, but maybe one thing we can talk about is just valuation and getting a nice sense of good versus bad deals. How, how do we get a sense of good versus bad? Sure. Well, I, I I certainly hope anyone doing their their first personal real estate deal is uh, has at least brushed up on valuations, or else you're going to get absolutely shellacked. But yeah, I mean, I, I you know most of my friends it seems have have really limited understandings of of kind of how real estate is valued and and why it's worth what it's worth. So many of these these folks are like, oh, it feels like a good neighborhood that will quote go up. <laughs> um, kind of like they're they're exactly. they're playing the market, uh, right. you know, buying equities that they think will go up over time, and and it, it's it's really you know I guess at fundamentally, just like equities, real estate is a claim on the future earnings of of an asset, uh, discounted at a you know a, a risk adjusted discount rate to today's value, but put. Kind of put more simply, there's there's really three ways that that we value real estate, and you know sometimes the the valuations through these three methodologies will come in different, and sometimes they'll they'll come in the same. But when they come in different, that's that's really where opportunity lies in real estate. When you know one one valuation comes in differently than the other, so the the three big valuation methodologies. Uh, the first and, and most fundamental is just sales comps. If you're buying an apartment building in downtown San Francisco, which is you know a very liquid market, it's pretty easy to go out and find 10 like-kind buildings that have traded in the last 12 months to, to, get, an, to get an idea of what, what the market is pricing these things at. It's, it's really rudimentary and, and doesn't, doesn't put a lot of thought into why the market is pricing these assets that way but if you're looking at a way to get get to a quick quick and dirty fair value just looking at comparable trades is the way to go the the next and, and the one that i think most most folks on the institutional side focus most on is um is income capitalization or the discounted cash flow approach they're variations on the same theme which is which is the theme that drives public markets as well and that's real estate is an asset with the capacity to generate cash flow if I'm looking at the cash flow it's generating today, plus anticipated growth over time, and then you know looking at what I feel is an appropriate discount factor 
for the risk of the asset, it'll be a lower discount rate in San Francisco than it is in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You know, taking that million dollars of income, dividing it by uh, a 5% cap rate, say, uh, which is the effective inverse of a PE multiple, uh, so you're getting a 5% yield over time, that gets you to a valuation of $20 million. You're, you're saying, I, if I invest $20 million, I'm willing to receive a million dollars in cash flow each year. Um, and, and that's a, a 5% return. Now that's, that's simplistic and there's a lot more that goes into it, but you know, that's, that's a pretty good starting point. And then the last valuation methodology that I think is often overlooked is, uh, is, is replacement cost. So y- you look at a building and, and say it's, it's on the market for $20 million, but you know, there's, there's a, a vacant plot of dirt next door and Legally, you could entitle and build the exact same building for, call it, $10 million. Now, there should be a little bit of a discount because there's all sorts of risk involved in building a building. I mean, a ton of things can go wrong. You're not making money for the period that you're building it. But a 50% discount, or I guess a 100% premium to replacement cost means that People are going to start building all around you, and your building is probably overvalued. So it's it's always it's always important to be to be thoughtful of what it what it costs to replace the exact same asset today. Sometimes it's tough to do. A, a lot of a lot of places have onerous zoning restrictions. A lot of places, you know, you just you can't replace the asset. The the land is if you're in the middle of San Francisco, good luck getting your hands on a a piece of dirt where where you can go and and you know build the Trans America <laughs> Pyramid again. It's just not right. going to happen. So, sure. uh, but yeah, so that's, that's really how you, you come up with a value for, for an op, uh, real estate operating asset. This is super, super helpful. I love the three things that you've outlined, it, giving individuals an idea from an institutional perspective, what the three different most commonly used valuation metrics are. I've got some questions going back over them for the sales comps. You talked about the apartment building in San Francisco being a fairly liquid market. Is there anything deeper in terms of how you would define a liquid market? Because um, the the re- residential rental property, the duplex, um, what's considered liquid for that versus what's considered liquid for an office building, uh, you know, in, in San Francisco? Sure. Well, I mean, the the idea of of liquidity fundamentally is just how how big is the is the buyer pool out there that to the extent you ever needed to liquidate your asset, you could sell it to. And San Francisco, I mean, San Francisco, like New York, frankly, even more so than New York, is in demand at all levels, from from single family homes to investment duplexes to you know, 150 unit apartment buildings to to office buildings. Everyone wants to put their money here because they feel that the the underlying economic drivers here are you know, are are sound and and growing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, San Francisco. I, I don't think there's a I don't think there's a market out there where there's not a big old pool of buyers waiting to get their hands on an asset at a great, price. Great point. Great point. Um, yeah. Great point. The, but the the you know, an example of a an illiquid market. I mean, think of a think of a smaller town. Think of Spokane. Actually, is a good example. It's not not too small, but 
there's a very limited pool of buyers who are interested in putting their dollars out, institutional buyers at least, putting their dollars out in, in Spokane, Washington, partially due to a little bit of herd mentality, and it's something that I find frustrating at an institutional shop. There, there are markets where capital likes to go and everyone piles into those markets. Mm-hmm. And there are markets that they don't. And uh, <laughs> you know, occasionally yeah. the, the herd misses and, and misses an, an opportunity for yield. Sure. Salt Lake City is a great example of a market that's not yes. on a lot of institutional investors' right. uh, watch list because right. they know that other institutional investors won't buy them out of their position. But you can go in and uh, you know, if, that, if that going in yield in San Francisco for an office building is a 4%, Salt Lake City, you're probably closer for the same asset, closer to about five and a half, six. Uh, mm-hmm. That 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 might be a, a little conservative, but you know, it, is is Salt Lake City really risking fifty percent riskier than uh, than San Francisco? And and taking into account the risk free rate, the the market's really saying it's three hundred percent riskier. I don't I don't think so. Um, yeah. So, but that's that's really the issue of liquidity. It's how how big the pool of prospective buyers is that will get you out of the asset if you've you know you've done everything you, you've added the value you want or you're done holding it to make sure that you're not left holding the bag. That's great. So let's let's continue. So the this uh, this attorney couple with five hundred thousand dollars, that's the equity they're bringing to the table. Are there some ideas or frameworks we can think about for how much debt to equity as a ratio one is going in. And before you answer, I can understand, you know, the financial planner in me, the CFP cap understands that every situation is different. I understand that. And everyone's goals are different, whether it's appreciation or income, but just let's assume some things and maybe you can just fill in the dots, but talk me through uh, from your expertise, like what, what should somebody be thinking about from, that the equity ratios and income versus appreciation. Sure. Well, I, I think I think the first the first hurdle that people need to get over for you know investing in investment real estate is uh, you know realizing that it's it's not the same as, as single family homes. Even if you're buying a single family home to to rent out, the, the market is very different, and that's because the government, the United States government, has a goal of increasing home ownership as your as your primary residence and so props up single family mortgages you know, they, they they effectively subsidize single family mortgages beyond what uh, you know, beyond what the financial markets would would allow so if you're going from oh you know i i, I put down 10 percent for my single family home and my my mortgage rate was four percent and, uh, and and you're expecting the same kind of metrics to hold true for your first duplex. Uh, that you're going to be you're going to be sorely mistaken. The, I love that. The, the market prices, the market prices, uh, debt for for investment properties much differently. And and you're looking at a hundred to hundred fifty basis point uh, spread above above what the you know the federally insured single family mortgage looks like. So rather than a four percent, you're looking at a five and a half percent mortgage term. Oftentimes, won't go out thirty years. You may be looking at a a twenty year amortizing term. 
Uh, and then the biggest thing is leverage. You're, you're not going to get away with putting 10% down because a, a, a lender, just, just, like, just like the position I was when I started out of college, uh, they don't want to get that asset back. Uh, they're, they're not in the business of operating a portfolio of real estate. They're in the business of holding notes, holding paper, and they want to get their coupon and get their money back at the end of the term. So uh, you're going to have to come up with a lot more equity to, uh, to, to play in the real estate space. It, it, it's still relatively higher leverage for multifamily than, uh, than office buildings and, and, and the space that, that I play in. But you'll, you'll have to put down 25% or so to, to really see, see attractive rates. So you brought up such great things. And, and first, just recognizing the fact that there is there, there is a subsidy happening when you can put down less than twenty percent on a single family home debt to equity, and you're you've got a thirty year amortizing loan. I just want to set some context for people that haven't invested in institutional buildings. So that's just not how it works on the other side of the on the other side of the uh, um, you know on the other side of the pool. So. That's first thing, and then second. So you're 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 coming up with more equity. The amortization schedule is shorter, and the interest rates are going to be a little bit higher, obviously because it's more risk to the lender. So I think it's like some really important takeaways. Share with us if there are maybe two or three other things that we can think about helping this this attorney couple as they're approaching this purchase. Sure. Well, I, yeah, I mean, it, it, it really comes down to, so once, once they can get comfortable with the fact that they need to put, put down 25% and their mortgage payment's going to be a little bit higher per pound than their, their single family home, then they need to start treating this as, as an investment. Okay. What is it that you're buying? Uh, San Francisco is a bad example because a, a lot of the, a lot of the investment, the, the product out on the, on the market that you would duplexes uh, are, are rent controlled. And so that, that I could go for hours on rent control and how it, how it skews the market. And uh, I'm not going to do that. But um, so say hypothetically, it's not, and, and you're buying a, a duplex as an investment property and, and there's tenants in each one. Well, that, that helps because now, you know, the, the property can generate income. And you know exactly how much income it is currently generating. You know, sound underwriting can tell you if if you can juice the rents a little bit or cut operating expenses. But fundamentally, let's just say the tenants in there are paying paying their market rate. I, I think I think one big big misunderstanding people have is okay, well, I have two tenants each paying five thousand dollars a month. That's ten ten thousand dollars a month times twelve months. Oh, $120,000 a year is what I'm making off of this property. As long as that's more than my debt service, I'm making money. And that, 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 that's the biggest misconception around real estate because uh, there, there's a lot of money you have to spend to, uh, you know, to, to keep these things running. First, you got to pay for insurance and you got to pay taxes. And beyond that, depending on the market, you need to pay certain utilities. You need to pay HOA dues or neighborhood association dues. Uh, and then a, a big oversight that a lot of people have is real estate's not passive. Uh, equities are passive. Someone is running the company and, and mailing you dividend checks every quarter. Uh, real estate 
needs to be managed. A, a tenant won't live in there for 30 years. You, you prefer that they don't live in there for 30 years. And there will be there will be requests. There will be pipes that break. There will be roofs that leak. And maybe after a year or two, these tenants will want to move on and maybe buy their own place. So you're going to have to re-tenant the place and worry about all of that. That requires some degree of property management, whether you whether you shop it out or you do it yourself. But someone's got to get paid or spend time doing that. So that $120,000 of income you, you have off the property can, uh, can dilute pretty quickly to uh, 90 or 70 or $60,000. And that is the income that you really need to be looking at. Okay, if I'm getting $60,000 off an investment a year and I'm paying a million dollars for it, uh, that's, a, that's a 6% yield. Do I feel good about that in the context of the universe of other investment opportunities? And, and maybe the answer is yes, because that 6% is your, your income yield. That, that doesn't even take into account uh, rent growth and, and appreciation on the, on the underlying asset. But in San Francisco, it's not going to be a 6. It's going to be a 4. Uh, and I can go out and buy Campbell's Soup equities for yes. a 4% d- dividend yield and spend a whole lot less time worrying about it. <laughs> and a lot less risk. Yeah, definitely. A lot less headache. So you brought up a ton of really good things. We're limited by our time. So we'll have to wrap it up in just a second and, and hopefully have you back on because I'm realizing there's more fundamentals we haven't talked about. Some of which are, yeah. Um, working with a property manager and asset manager, um, what the expectations should be going into this purchase or how much you're going to need to, to spend to upkeep and renovate it. Um, sort of what rent increases is like over time. So some of these things are flashing on my mind. So we'll, I'm sure we'll have to have you back. But um, I guess in closing, are there some other things that we can tie a bow in this conversation of anything else these people should be thinking about as they're uh, understanding how, they, how to approach this investment property decision? Yeah, I, I, think, I think the, the two big things that, that, I, that I like to tell friends interested in, in, in personal investment properties, uh, and, and I, again, you know, it, sound, it sounds like I'm, I'm poo-pooing the, the asset class, and, and I'm not. I just, I want people to go in with, with eyes wide open. And so the, the two things, the two kind of takeaways, uh, one is that while real estate is a somewhat liquid asset class, uh, especially today when there's plenty of money out there, it's, it's something that you can't just sell like an equity. Um, so you, you need to be mindful of the fact that once you buy a building, you own a building and you're responsible for taking care of the building until you sell it. And if you, if you like to, to fly around the world and you know, enjoy a, a life of leisure and you, you hope to do that, off of the rents from your property, you better have someone back home looking after your asset because it's uh, it, it can be a, a bit of a ball and chain for folks who, uh, who, who <laughs> didn't really anticipate that there was work to do on the asset. Yeah. The other is, and this is, this is real estate at every level, uh, whether it's a, a home up to the Empire State Building, uh, they... It, Real estate always requires more capital than you think. Uh, 
Uh, and when I say capital, I'm, I'm not talking about the taxes and, and you know, property management, ongoing expenses. I'm talking a roof replacement. I'm talking a basement flood. I'm talking even, even things as simple as a new, new paint and carpet. When, when you buy an asset thinking you're, you're getting a 6% yield, maybe, maybe throw a little bit, little bit of dry powder in there for the inevitable capital that you're going to spend and get okay with earning a 5%. Because uh, that, that, those capital items will come up. And if you're not planning for them, uh, they're going to be a huge bummer. I love what you said. Those are two incredibly good takeaways. This isn't the, yeah, if you're, if you're thinking that this isn't going to be a ball and chain, you might be in for a rude awakening. And um, you definitely, there's real estate always requires so much more money than you think. So I think that's, those are good takeaways. Um, I guess with that, Alec, we'll, we'll put a bow on it and wrap it up. This was so much fun to talk with you. I appreciate all of your time and your expertise. Again, as a quick disclaimer, all of this is just for conversation stake. So make sure to talk to your professional advisors, attorneys, CPAs, or financial advisors if you need to. But uh, with that, Alex, thanks for being here, man. Awesome, dude. This was great. Let's, let's do it again anytime. Thanks for tuning in to The John Chapman Show. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. We encourage your questions, comments, and feedback. For additional information, check out thejohnchapmanshow.com or look for John on LinkedIn and Twitter. See you next week.